Hi, Steve Mursky here, and welcome back for part two of Dan Falk talking about his book, The Science of Shakespeare, A New Look at the Playwright's Universe. There are a couple of people that you talk about in the book. One is Donald Olson, and I was uh, fortunate enough to hear him give a talk on the, the uh, night sky and some artworks, uh, Munch's uh, The Scream and also actually the photography of Ansel Adams. And uh, But you talk about uh, some work he did related to Shakespeare, and this is really solid stuff. So let's talk about him a little bit, and then we'll talk about this other fellow, Usher, who's more speculative. Sure. Yeah, I, I'm glad you got to see one of Donald Olson's talks. Um, they're, they're terrific. <laughs> he's, um, for, for listeners who aren't familiar with him, he's been called a, a forensic astronomer, so his specialty is finding references to the stars, whether in, in art, like from a painting. Uh, you mentioned uh, Edward Munch's The Scream. Uh, he's done it for, for some others, too. Um, for photography, like like Ansel Adams, but also for for works of literature, um, he's tried to figure out you know what was going on in the sky when Julius Caesar invaded Britain and this sort of thing. And and at a certain point, by now it's about a decade ago, he turned his attention to Hamlet. And I'll, so here here's the deal with with uh, I think it's Act One, Scene One of Hamlet. So I, I think everybody knows what's going on at the beginning of Hamlet. But the the, the brief recap is this: that there's a a ghostly figure that has appeared on the ramparts or above the ramparts uh, at Elsinore these last few days. Uh, the guards have seen it. Um, Prince Hamlet hasn't seen it yet. That's that's about to happen. But uh, along comes Horatio, and Horatio is chatting with the guards, and um, they're describing it to him, and, uh, you know, one of the guards says that Horatio is skeptical, and he's not going to believe us, blah, blah, blah. And, and at a certain point, this is very early in the play, at a certain point Horatio says, well, what, when did you say this this ghost appears? And the guard uh, replies, um, well, it's when yon same star that's westward from the pole had made his course to that part of the heaven where it now shines. So I paraphrased it, but that, that's approximately the line. It's when yon same star that's westward from the pole. Uh, that part I've, <laughs> I've memorized. And, and of course, scholars have occasionally, not as often as you might think, but scholars have stopped to ask, what star are we talking about? What star is positioned westward from the pole? Now, the pole means what we would call the North Star or Polaris, so that, that part is easy. And if you pick up a... The, the way I put like to put it is this. You, you know, you, you go to the bookstore or the library and you get a, a, an edition of Hamlet. Well, that's easy because there's hundreds of them. And if it's a really thin one, there are no footnotes. If it's the middle-sized one, there will be a little footnote or a little asterisk next to pole star... And the footnote will say, um, uh, sorry, next to the pole, and the footnote will say pole star. Well, that's very helpful. Now, now you know that pole means pole star. But if you get a really thick one, like, the, you know, the Oxford or the Norton or something like that, uh, it'll have some speculation as to what the identity of the star is. But it's always been tricky. For one thing, we don't actually know that it refers to, you know, it could just be invented, right? So it doesn't actually have to refer to something. But if it does, for, for scholars who have thought this through, and, and I'll get to uh, Olson's theory in just a second, but but there are problems, right? I mean, uh, some of the scholarly, and I, I checked, actually, as you can imagine, for researching this book, I checked what a lot of the scholarly editions say, and they have guesses like, well, maybe it's the star Capella, or maybe it's a plant, right? So I, I don't know exactly where they got these guesses from. They're, I mean, they're not horrible, but as it turns out, they're, they're pretty bad. Um, the star Capella, I have to backtrack for a second, um, 
the the same uh, line in the text uh, where the guard is um, mentioning that um, a star appears west from the pole. Uh, he, he also says what time it happens. He says the bell then beating one. So we know it's one o'clock in the morning. Um, now, do we know what time of year it is? Because this is critical. To know what's up in the sky, you have to know the time of night and the time of year. Well, scholars point to November as being pretty likely, and the uh, the evidence is that two months have elapsed since the death of the of old King Hamlet. Well, we now know that he was murdered, but um, he says he was napping out in the garden, right? He says, S was my custom, you know, it was a warm a warm afternoon, so I had a nap out in the garden. So it has to have been warm-ish, right? And then two months later, remember they're talking about how bitterly cold it is on the ramparts at Elsinore. So it really feels like winter. So the timeline that's been suggested is September for the murder, November for seeing uh, the ghost. Okay, so, well, why not the Star Capella? Because the Star Capella is a little too high up in the sky. And, and yes, it is kind of near the pole, but if a star is really high up, you say it's overhead or you say it's near the zenith, if you want to get into astronomical jargon, but it's not in the west. It just it doesn't work out. It's not it's not westward from the pole. And a planet, well, astronomy, if we have any amateur astronomers listening or anyone who remembers their astronomy 101, a planet has to be on the ecliptic. A planet has to be on this, uh, pla- I mean, the planet's orbit, uh, the sun, as we as we now know, in sort of a, a, a plane, like a frisbee. So they all, as seen from the Earth, they all have to appear on a, a particular line. It's like you're hanging them from a clothesline if you spot a few of them at night. Uh, lately, I've been able to see Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars in the in the same night sky just from sitting on the front porch, and they're just, just in out. a straight line. Exactly, exactly right. And this, it's a straight line, and it also it, it wraps around the sky from from east to west. Uh, so if you see a planet, the planet has to be on that line. It can't just be some, in some arbitrary place. So, so a planet is actually a very unlikely candidate for the star westward from the pole. So what does that leave you with? Well, I mean, there is one somewhat prominent constellation there, and that would be Cassiopeia. But Cassiopeia doesn't have any really bright stars. It has, now again, for astronomy enthusiasts, uh, you know, we have so-called first magnitude stars, second magnitude, third magnitude, and the, the higher the number, the fainter the star. So, um, you know, Vega, Arcturus, um, Sirius, these are first magnitude. I think actually Sirius is so bright, I think it's uh, zeroth magnitude. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, uh, those are the first magnitude stars. The stars in the Big Dipper are second magnitude, and, and the stars in Cassiopeia are also second magnitude. So they're bright, but they're not amazingly bright. But more to the point, there's five of them, and they're all approximately equally bright. So... There, you, you just wouldn't point to one star in Cassiopeia and then use it as your reference frame for telling the time. It just doesn't make any sense. You could use the whole constellation if you wanted to, but yeah. So Donald Olson, this forensic astronomer, comes into the picture and says, well, you know, yeah, that's true. There aren't any bright, really bright stars in Cassiopeia today, but we were talking about the events of 1572, there was. This new star, the supernova, appeared in the constellation Cassiopeia. Uh, Tycho Brahe even publishes this diagram in which it's marked. You've got the traditional W or M, depending on which side you're looking at it from. So you have this uh, W or M of Cassiopeia, and then there's an extra star, and the extra star is is the supernova. Um, Well, there you go. So there's a star that 
Now, does that mean that the appearance of the ghost occurs in 1572? Well, we don't, we don't have to get that literal about it. Um, but the point is that Shakespeare may have been, you know, remembering this incident, um, and just having a little fun with his audience. And some people would get it and some people wouldn't, or maybe, maybe almost no one would, would get it. But this is Donald Olson's theory that maybe, you know, this star westward from the pole is, was inspired by a thing that happened when when Shakespeare was a youngster. And I will just add one last little item to that story, which I think so actually sounds fairly plausible. Uh, at least I'll tell you what, plausible or not, it's a better guess than Capella, and it's a better guess than a planet, which are what some quite well-respected Shakespeare scholars have have been guessing up up to this point. So another point is that. You know, you could say, well, Shakespeare was only eight years old. I mean, is it is something he saw when he was eight years old really going to be relevant to him as an adult? Well, the thing is, people took notes, people um, stared at this object for the better part of a year, and then when Holland said published his chronicles, this is the the, the historian that um, Shakespeare relied on as a reference for all of the history plays, basically. So we we know Shakespeare read. Holland said. Holland said mentions the supernova and says what a spectacular sight it was. So even if the memory, the actual memory of seeing it when he was eight years old in 1572 was fading, but at, you know, as an adult, he has a chance to be reminded of just how incredible that mm-hmm. thing was. So I think Donald Olson has, I mean, you know, it's not proof. You can't, you can't really prove anything uh, along, you know, when you're doing this kind of thing, but it's it's pretty good. It's not It's not a bad argument. And now we have this other fellow, Peter Usher, is it? Mm-hmm. Now, he believes that the entire Hamlet play is an exploration of Ptolemaic versus Copernican uh, interpretations of the solar system. That That's what Hamlet is actually about, which... Strikes me as pushing it a little bit, but it's an interesting place to examine the play from. Yeah, that's exactly how I would have phrased it. Yeah, it's, you know, most... uh, Yes, I would say it's extravagant. I will mention that it's one of the things that got me interested in this subject, because I was at a a conference of the um, American Astronomical Society. This was way back. This was in the mid-1990s. But Peter Usher was invited to give a little... Uh, talk about uh, his his idea. Now, Usher is a retired astronomer. He, that's what he did for a living for many years. But he took it upon himself to become uh, a Shakespeare scholar. Uh, that that's how he spent all of his uh, his free time, and especially now that he's he's retired, that's what he continues to do. And he has this pretty radical interpretation of Hamlet. Uh, that, as you say, that the characters in Hamlet sort of stand in for famous astronomers or thinkers of either of Shakespeare's time or from antiquity, and that the events of the play can be read as like a, a protracted argument about the competing um, cosmological worldviews. Yeah, I do think it's a bit extravagant. Uh, professional scholars also think it's, well, I mean, extravagant or, or you know, a little bit beyond extravagant, I, I would say. But, but... Scott Misano and John Pitcher and a few others say that Peter Usher has actually done something quite useful. I mean, yes, the, the idea is, again, maybe a little bit far-fetched, but it's gotten people asking 
in some cases, maybe for the first time, taking the time to look at Hamlet and say, well, hold on, yeah, is there something I missed? I mean, is Hamlet, is there a bit more going on, like, about the universe than I thought there was in Hamlet? So so I think Peter Usher has done something very useful, and and I think it's great that he, you know, he spent years sort of working on this theory, and I think it's it's terrific that he's done that, uh, even though, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, really willing to embrace this um this allegory uh theory but um but yeah it is interesting i mean uh, he's got um you know the, the the thing that set him off is he couldn't help noticing that uh the the bad guy is is claudius right so it's the it's hamlet's uncle turns out that that claudius killed uh old king hamlet but of course claudius is also the first name of claudius ptolemy the ancient greek astronomer who is thought of as the you know the great. Uh, well, when we th- when we think of the old geocentric worldview, we think of of Ptolemy, right? We think of Aristotle, maybe, and we think of Ptolemy. So that's interesting. And then, so he then he figured that you know Hamlet must uh, must stand in for um, uh, the the what turned out to be the correct view, the Copernican view. And he knows about the the Rosencrantz Guildenstern thing, of course, because a few people have commented on that over the years. So so naturally, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are going to be standing in for, for Tycho Brahe, the, the Danish astronomer, and he goes on from there. He's built, I, I won't try to go into any more details than that, but I mean, he's got this whole, uh, lengthy, uh, sort of allegory, and, and yeah, it's, it's it sounds a little less crazy the more you go into the, the, uh, the details. It's, it, it's still, uh... as you say, it's, it's extravagant, but, there are aspects to it that are intriguing enough to at least consider as a possible influence. I mean, it's a play, and it's it's very dramatic. It's probably not devoted to this issue of Copernicus versus Ptolemy, but that might have played a role in informing some of the choices within the play. I agree. Yeah, yeah. And he has some ideas about, you know, when the telescope was invented that are quite unconventional. He has some right. ideas about about Leonard the so there are two Leonard Diggses, right? But the the old Leonard Diggs, Leonard Diggs, the father of Thomas Diggs, allegedly maybe had access to a telescope, depending it's all it's all a bit nebulous. I mean we, we, we have an account from Thomas Diggs sort of written much later saying, Yeah, my dad, you know, back in the day, I'm paraphrasing, back in the day my dad was doing these things with tubes and pieces of glass, and, you know, he could see a coin that we placed out in the field, and he could, you know, read the lettering on the the entrance to the church on the other side of town. And Well, but, you know, is that to be taken at face value, or was he just trying to make it sound like he had a impressive dad? Or, you know, we just don't know. And there, there aren't any other independent accounts. So, so did... Leonard, and if, if this had happened, this would have been like the middle of the 1500s. Right, so. Well before Galileo. Well before Galileo and, and Hens Lippershe or Lipperhe, the, the Dutch, uh, inventor, uh, Although centuries the after Morgan Freeman invents the telescope in the horrible Kevin Costner Robin Hood movie. I, I don't remember <laughs> what happens in that movie, so. <laughs> I guess I can't say. Anyway, so this, uh, the the rise of the house of usher in this case is an interesting is yeah. an interesting uh, subject to think about especially i mean Ham, have you ever seen a, a a full version of hamlet uncut mm-hmm. yeah you've sat there for the, At full the very four least, hours well 
I mean, certainly on video I have. Yeah. Uh, on stage, the versions I've seen on stage, I suspect were cut. Be- mm-hmm. uh, in you know because I don't recall one being like three and a half or four hours, but uh, I mean it's a great play, and yeah, I think I think the problem, well, one of the problems with these sort of radical interpretations is that you know we tend to forget that Shakespeare was a businessman and a writer, and he was trying to write plays that would be that would hold people's attention, that would get them coming back to the theater for a repeat <laughs> viewing, that would get them to tell their friends what a great play it was, and so you know he wasn't. You, you don't want to get too far, too carried away with this. Like, he wasn't, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson saying, and now here are some things you ought to understand about the universe. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he wasn't trying to do this sort of public service type of thing or, um. He was a showbiz guy. He was a showbiz guy. He, he was a shareholder in the company that was putting on the plays. He owned part of the Glo- Globe Theater. I mean, it was. He had a lot going on and he was sort of on a schedule too. Like, he was writing. Right several plays per year to stay ahead of the competition. So, I mean, none of that makes it impossible that he was also sort of invested in this debate about worldviews. I just, I think it's more like what you said a moment ago. I think if he heard something, it doesn't have to have been about astronomy or cosmology. If he, if he was exposed to something really different or intriguing or fascinating, he would incorporate little bits of it into what he was working on. And to Usher's credit, he's... He's got a good attitude about this. In the book, you you quote him as saying something like, "People have been arguing about this for four hundred years. They can they can argue about it for another couple of centuries. I'm not I'm not so invested in convincing the world of this this week." Yeah, you know, he and he was very gracious. I mean, I interviewed him uh, at the same time that I was working on the book. I, I worked on a, a radio documentary. If if people are interested, I believe it can be accessed online at the. Uh, the CBC's website, that's the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and and it had the same title as the book, The Science of Shakespeare. So he was very generous with his time. He was very accommodating. We had a long sit-down chat like you and I are doing uh, at the moment. Um, and, yeah, he was not, he didn't do the hard sell. Like, he, he wasn't at all upset if I didn't embrace the theory. And, moreover, he was very accepting of the fact that most people are not going to embrace this the Hamlet allegory and in, in the and it's not it's not just you know he keeps the Hamlet is, is thing is one thing but he he finds little astronomical uh, you know things in in th- throughout the Shakespeare canon and and of course some of I mean some of them are plausible but some of them are yeah some of them are a little a little more yeah far fetched I would say but at any rate it's it's I think it's it's terrific that he's doing what he's doing and and it's certainly stimulating other people too to look at some of these ideas more closely. I just want to say the, um, I think it's the only full four hour Shakespeare, uh, Hamlet that I've seen, uh, was more than 35 years ago. It was at Lincoln Center and, uh, Sam Waterston played Hamlet. Sam Waterston, oh, yeah. who the everybody, district, the, district the district attorney <laughs> from Law and Order and, uh, yeah. and, uh, he was quite brilliant. So if, if Sam Waterston by any chance, happens to hear this. Uh, I hope he knows that somebody out there remembers his Hamlet. Um, there's a line in Hamlet, very famous line. Uh, there's, there's more, uh, than it's so famous. I can't remember it, but uh, it's the line about there's more more than things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in your philosophy. Exactly. And you point out in the book that if that line were being written today, 
we would say science rather than philosophy. Philosophy being short <laughs> yeah. for natural philosophy. Well, you know, Shakespeare being Shakespeare, of course, the, the scholars do argue about that line. So there, I can't say there's a full consensus, but, but several scholars say, yeah, f- philosophy, because we have to remember science wasn't called science until the 19th century, at least not commonly. Um, so what, Today is science, you know, bits of it that were around in Shakespeare's time were called natural philosophy. So, um, and there are are different synonyms. I mean, when somebody calls somebody else a scholar, they also mean, you know, they were investigating uh, different aspects of of the world, right? So in in Act 1, Scene 1, the guard says, uh, thou art a scholar, speak to it, Horatio. I said, you know, uh, Horatio has been to university, so he's very knowledgeable. Um, but yeah, uh, more things than are dreamt of in your philosophy is presumably a reference to what science does and doesn't understand. But again, like so many other lines, it, it's a little bit ambiguous. Like is Hamlet saying that science is a failure because, you know, it has not explained everything? Like, hey, look, here's a ghost. I, be- I bet your science can't explain this. Um, you know... I, it, it's a little, it, again, as with so many lines in Shakespeare, it can be read more than one way. We were talking a little earlier about Thomas Diggs, or I, I guess I went off on a long sort of <laughs> thing about Thomas Diggs, but I, I forgot to mention another kind of exciting line in Hamlet where he says, um, I would consider myself a king of infinite space, where not right. that I have bad dreams. That's really key. We should it talk is, about yeah, that. Yeah, and... This fits in, allegedly, I, I mean, Peter Usher makes a big deal of it, but but a few other people, it's, it's not just Peter Usher, a few other people have looked at that and said, well, you know, th- th- there is one <laughs> English thinker who spoke about infinite space in Shakespeare's time, and we've already met him, it was Thomas Diggs. So when, when Thomas Diggs published that updated version of his father's almanac with this uh, endorsement of the Copernican theory... Um, he also includes uh, a diagram, and it's a very eye- striking, it's a very eye-catching diagram. It's it's what you might call the traditional Copernican system in the middle, and then on the outer perimeter, there are the stars, but the stars just sort of keep going and going. They don't seem to have any sort of boundary, and they're not attached to a crystalline sphere. So, is it an infinite universe? Well, you know, we, we don't know exactly what was in Diggs's mind, but it looks like maybe he's suggesting that the universe is limitless or, or boundless. And so when when Ham when Prince Hamlet says uh, that I could be a king of infinite space, again, if that line just existed in isolation with nothing else, I guess we might be a little bit stumped as to how to read it. But take into account all that other business that I was saying before about you know uh, the. The Elsinore, the castle at Elsinore being so close to Tycho Brahe's castle and Shakespeare having some contacts with Thomas Diggs's family and maybe seeing the engraving showing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as two of Tycho Brahe's relatives. So maybe when you add it all up, you know, you get more, a stronger case, perhaps, for this connection between um, uh, the, the play Hamlet and the new, this bold new vision of the universe, either from Tycho's perspective or from uh, Th- Thomas Diggs's perspective. It's fun stuff to think about. I, I want to wrap up by um, just having a little fun. There's uh, something in the book. You you attended 
a couple of Shakespeare or at least one Shakespeare Scholars Conference. Yeah, I actually I went twice. It was held. Twice. I was very lucky. The conference. It's the it's the world's largest. It's the Shakespeare Association of America, and it just happened to be held in Boston in 2012 and Toronto in 2013. So I got to see it two years in a row. And yeah. So um, there's a lot of really esoteric stuff that goes on in academia in general. I mean, we go to science conferences and uh, things that we probably take for granted as being completely normal would look like very strange subjects to outsiders. And I just want to read, uh, you have eight titles of talks from uh, the last two Shakespeare conferences. I'm going to read the eight titles. Number one, Diagnosing Hamlet, The Mad Prince and the Autism Spectrum. Two, Diseating Macbeth, Macbeth's Indigestion and the Matter of Milk. Three, The Ecology of the Tempest, Was Prospero's Island Carbon Neutral? Four, Exultations Whizzing, Meteorology, Melancholy, and Moral Action in Julius Caesar. Five, The Georgic Contract, Agrarian Bioregionalism and Eco-Cosmopolitanism in Henry IV, Part Two. Six, Head in the Clouds, Historicism, Hamlet, and Neurophenomenology. Seven, Shakespeare's Quantum Physics, The Merry Wives of Windsor, as a feminist parallel universe of Henry the Fourth, Part Two, and finally, Title Eight: The Unbearable Lightness of Being Ariel, is Prospero's little helper a hologram? Okay, only five of the eight are actual titles of talks. So, I didn't check the notes where you reveal which three you made up. Ah, what, you're, you're still pondering the list, then, <laughs> right? Yeah. Why don't I guess which three I think you made <laughs> up, and then you can tell me. I don't think that the uh, hologram is Prospero's Little Helper hologram. I don't think that's real. Yeah, you're right. That's a fake one. Okay. I also don't think that um, was Prospero's Island carbon neutral. I don't think that's real. You're good at this. That's also one of the fake ones. Okay. Now the third one. I'm going to go with Macbeth's indigestion in the matter of milk. No, that's that's a real. Title. That's a real one. Okay, why don't you? Uh, yeah, t- I have to look at the list. I have to remind myself which was the third fake. Tell one. me what the. But fake you see, one there. Is. You know, I thought I would have some fun with this. Um, uh, but you can actually tell the ones that are really wordy are actually yeah. too complicated to make up. Right. So anything about eco cosmo, like I can't make that stuff uh, up, right? Right. right. So b- b- agrarian bio regional. I mean, that's that's real because you can't you can't make that stuff up. Let me see which is the. So Shakespeare's think, quantum physics is real. Yeah, that's real. You know what? I guess I guess the um, the autism spectrum one is fake, and I actually, you guessed it, but I told you that you were wrong. I think you were actually no, I didn't guess. That oh, you one. didn't guess it? Okay, uh, well, that's I guess it. the Mac, uh, Macbeth matter. Of okay, milk. yeah, yeah. So Mad Prince and the autism spectrum spectrum is is fake. I made that up. But the reason I put those in there, I, you know, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to the many fine scholars who do Shakespeare, but I just wanted to point out that having sort of extravagant fringy right un you know ideas that only you and your thesis supervisor found interesting or you know what i mean like that sort of thing isn't rare that's very common right. in, so you're in putting peter world. usher's efforts in a context in, in, in context it doesn't mean i believe what what uh, you know that usher's theory needs to be taken seriously but i'm saying if you dismiss it just because it sounds far-fetched then you're basically dismissing 
something like two thirds of the activity that goes on in Shakespeare's scholarship today. So I, that it's just to give it a, a bit of a bit of perspective. Mm-hmm. And you know, just before we go, I because we didn't talk about the the, the symboling thing. There's this whole oh, yeah. interesting thing. Can I talk about yeah, that? Yeah, please for just a go moment? ahead. All right. It, so I save it for I think it's chapter nine in the book, and and it it actually also comes quite late in Shakespeare's career. Uh, some of your listeners might not even be very familiar with the play Symboline. Uh, um, when I when I give uh, uh, talks uh, since the book has come out, I, I ask people, you know, by show of hands, if they've seen or read Symboline. Usually, almost nobody puts their hand up. And if I ask them about um, uh, King Lear or Hamlet, of course, all the hands go up. Um, but it's very interesting, and and it has a, perhaps an even more likely. I would actually say quite likely astronomical connection, uh, maybe a stronger case than the, the Hamlet, uh, Tico Brahe thing. Um, and it comes late in the play. Um, now for people to make sense of this, I, can I, can I give just a little plot summary of Cymbeline? Please. Go <laughs> okay. Ahead. Um, if it's yeah, too much, no, you, you, can need, always... you need to do it for me okay. because right. I'm really not familiar with that work. Happy to do it. You know, if I, if I got nothing else out of writing this book, it's you that, read everything. Uh, well, I, I've read, I've pretty much read read all the plays, and I mean, I haven't. I I do get confused sometimes with the comedies and everybody's dressed as the other person's right, lost right, brother and right. different genders and so on. It can be a little bit complicated, but <laughs> at least now I can go around uh, summarizing uh, Cymbeline. And okay, so Cymbeline is set in ancient Britain. It's around the time of the birth of Christ. Uh, the Roman armies are threatening to invade. Um, they want King Simbly. Now, there actually was a King Simbly. Well, I don't know how his name would have been pronounced, but there, there actually was an ancient king. But there, there's basically no resemblance between the the real king, what what little we know about him, and the the king that Shakespeare has made up for the purposes of this play. At any rate, um, the Romans want him to pay a, a tribute, basically a like a, a bribe or something like that, so that they won't invade. The king has a daughter named uh, Im- Imogen. Uh, and she has gone off and married a commoner named Posthumus Leonatus. Uh, the king disapproves of their marriage, so um, she runs away, and he goes into exile, he goes to Italy. Now, some complicated shenanigans happen. In Italy, uh, Posthumus uh, meets up with his friend Giacomo, and they immediately get into an argument about, well, it's not quite wh- whose wife is, is the most faithful, because I think Giacomo is still a bachelor, but it's basically... Posthumus says, well, the, the women of my country are the most faithful. And Giacomo says, no, the women of my country, Italy, are the most faithful. Anyway, uh, t- times have changed. So this isn't necessarily the kinds of arguments that uh, Brit- Britons and Italians have today, I, I, I don't think. But at any rate, this is in the characters in Shakespeare's play decide this is a, a big deal to argue about. And Giacomo says, well, you know what? I bet that if I travel to England, I can seduce your wife. And... Uh, Postumus says, I bet you can't. And, uh, Giacomo says, I bet I can. Well, anyway, so he actually does go to England and sneaks by hiding in a trunk. Okay, I'm not going to reveal what happens, so th- your, your listeners will still be into some suspense as to whether or not he's able to seduce, uh, the wife of... You're not oh. going to, this is, there's no spoiler yeah. alert necessary. <laughs> well. The play's 400 years old, you can spoil it. <laughs> All right, well, he, do, no, he, he doesn't have sex with her, but he does some other politically incorrect things. He, he emerges from the trunk that he was hiding in, and what he does is he gets out his notepad and starts writing down a detailed description of her body. I, I told you it was politically incorrect. Uh, so that when he goes back to Italy, um, uh, Postumus will believe 
that he slept with her and thus will win the bet, right? Yeah, so he actually, in other words, he actually has some qualms about actually sleeping with her, but figures that he'll he'll take notes uh, about her appearance. And say, the whole thing is kind of, i got to say, it's a little bit icky, um, yeah, from today's standards. But at any rate, uh, that's only one of the several intertwined plots. There's also uh, the king's long-lost sons that are living in the forest where they're being raised by a former lord who is now an outlaw. And then his, the king's wife, um, who, well, I guess she is the queen, but she has a son by a previous marriage, and he's kind of a, an idiot named Cloten. I hope I've got the name right, and, she, and the queen is plotting to get him put on the throne. So uh, so anyway, all these things are happening all at once, but the plot that is relevant to us is is um, the, the relationship between Imogen and Posthumus. So Posthumus, um, f- believing that... Uh, his wife has been unfaithful, um, sends an order for her to be killed. Now, the order, he said no spoiler alert, so all right. So the order isn't carried out. Imogen is not killed, but Posthumus believes she has been killed, so he is, but then finding out that, in fact, that was the wrong thing to do, she hadn't been unfaithful, so he's now beside himself. He, He wishes that his wife had not been killed, and so now he wants to die, and he figures the easiest way to do this is to pretend uh, to be a Roman. So he goes back to England. He figures he'll pretend to be a Roman, and that way he'll be killed by British troops. Uh, terrific plan, right? So <laughs> he, go- he goes back to England. He is captured, and he's thrown in jail. Now, as it turns out, I mean, again, you said no spoilers. So I, I, incredibly, all these threads are, to Shakespeare's credit, everything, everything works out okay uh, a few scenes later, and there's actually a happy ending uh, at least by the standards of, I mean, it's it's actually lumped in with the tragedies. It's not really a tragedy like King Lear or Hamlet because it doesn't have this high body count. Most, not everyone, most people do survive this play. Okay, but here's what happens in Act 5. Posthumus has been captured by the British. He's thrown in jail. He falls into kind of a trance or a dreamlike state, and four ghosts appear. And the ghosts are ghosts of his father and mother and two brothers. These are actually people that he never knew in life. He's named Posthumus because he never knew his dad, and uh, I think his mother died in childbirth or something, and I forget how the brothers died. doesn't really matter. The point is, these people are now ghosts. And they come, and according to the stage direction, they they circle Posthumus round as he lies sleeping. So, more or less, the ghosts are moving in a circle around Posthumus. And they are very upset. They share his pain that everything has gone so terribly wrong, and they call on Jupiter, the god Jupiter, to help. Now, that by, so what I've said up to this point isn't so shocking, because in Shakespeare's plays, you often have characters who are in some sort of a pickle, and they call on the gods to do something. But here's what's different. Normally, the gods uh, don't really uh, intervene. You don't get a lot of deus ex machina, if I'm pronouncing it right, to help out. But in Act 5 of Cymbeline, sure enough, Jupiter descends from the heavens... I don't have the stage direction in front of me, but it's something like Jupiter descends uh, in in thunder and lightning, um, uh, r- riding a, uh, riding a th- oh riding an eagle. That's it. Yeah, riding an eagle, and uh, he yes he throws a thunderbolt. That's it. So Jupiter comes down from the heavens, um, starts talking to the ghosts. He tells them to to quit quit your whining, basically. Um, so what is going on here? It's a very unusual scene. 
And this play was published in, or not published, but first performed, we believe, in 1610, maybe the summer, maybe the fall of 1610. So within a few months, maybe half a year of the publication of Galileo's remarkable little book, The Starry Messenger, Siderius Nuncius, this is the book where Galileo's describing what he's seen through the telescope, including, among other things, the fact that Jupiter has for moons, well, now we know they're moons revolving around Jupiter. Um, in the in the Copernican, in the geocentric view, everything has to revolve around the Earth. But once you adopt the Copernican view, it's okay for the universe to have more than one center. So we go around the sun, the other planets go around the sun. But these little moons go around Jupiter. So it's already, this is kind of a shocking, a shocking development. So that's been published earlier in the year. And now Shakespeare has a play with Jupiter now, okay, it's not the planet Jupiter, it's the god Jupiter, but still. And then four ghosts come and move in a circle. It's kind of, it's a little bit too much to be a coincidence, at least according to the to the small handful of scholars that have written about it. When I first came across these papers that talk about this, I thought, oh my goodness, that's the most interesting thing. You know, I thought that was the most interesting thing I've ever read about, you know, Shakespeare and his sources and what what inspired him. I thought there would be a whole literature on this. There isn't. There's a handful. A small. Actually, it's three people. It's, <laughs> and I've I've mentioned them already. It's um, Scott Misano at UMass Boston, uh, John Pitcher in Oxford in England, who is in fact he's written the most about it, or at least the most widely read, probably because he wrote the introduction to the recent Penguin edition of the play where he talks about this relation alleged possible relationship between the starry messenger and Cymbeline in some detail. So if, if people want to check that out, it's uh, there. But it's also chapter nine of the science of Shakespeare. Uh, and then the third person is is Peter Usher, who we talked about, who had this rather extravagant theory of, of uh, yeah. Hamlet as, a, as an allegory. So so there you go. So here's, you know, it's uh, it's just one scene in, in the play Cymbeline, although, of course, Peter Usher finds other things. Well, you know, even Scott Misano finds a few other little nuggets in there. Uh, towards the end of the play, as all the threads come together um king cymbeline says does the world go around now it, it, he could just be talking about like i'm feeling dizzy right mm-hmm. we've all had this mm-hmm. experience where you you spin around you stop and oh my goodness the world is going around but on the other hand you know as scott mazano writes in one of his papers this question does the earth move does the earth spin does it move around the sun these are exactly the questions that are being argued about by the, the deepest thinkers of the day. These are in, in certain quarters. It's not necessarily people in the tavern were talking about it, but in certain quarters, these were like the most pressing issues of the day. So it's, so it's very interesting um, that there's this possible connection. Great stuff. This is a, a fun book. I mean, obviously, if you're listening to Scientific American podcasts, you're probably a science-interested person. If you're also uh, a theater fan, a Shakespeare fan, you know, you really sort of have to read this book. Well, thank you so much, Steve. I, I really, I'm very thrilled to be talking about it here. And, and uh, you know, it's it's Shakespeare's 450th birthday. Uh, uh, yeah, read a book about Shakespeare. And then it's summertime, before summer ends, go see Shakespeare in the Park or uh, or read one of the plays again. Absolutely. Or, or see a Shakespeare film. The, yeah. the I think the, the best Shakespeare film that I've ever seen is... Julie Taymor's Titus Andronicus. Mm. It is, it, I mean. <laughs> it's it, visual, it's visually oh, yeah. very, very striking. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And the performance by Anthony Hopkins is, 
is great to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I mean, I have, I guess my, uh, my own favorites, but, but if, and you know what? If people have forgotten how gory Titus Andronicus oh, is, yeah. you know, just give that a read. I mean, you, you don't want to know what's in that pie, but, but it is, <laughs> you know, thank goodness times have changed because these were bloody times. And I mean, Shakespeare is obviously exaggerating things for dramatic effect, but oh my goodness, qu- quite a body count. Uh, yeah. you know, this is before Dirty Harry and Rambo and the rest of it, but, Shakespeare knew how to write a bloodbath if he if he wanted to. What's your favorite <laughs> Shakespeare movie? Um, let me think. See, it's tough because I don't always remember the movie adaptations. I, I think my favorite play, just in terms of, I, even though it's one of the simpler of the tragedies, I think Macbeth really yeah. works for me. Yeah. I just like the way it unfolds. Yeah, There's a certain too. logic to it. It doesn't have the best reputation because it's it is considered to be a, a bit simple. That is, we you know we teach it to. Either, you know, advanced high school students or it's, you know, it's, if you take it in first year university, it would be near the beginning of the semester. Cause it, it really is not meant to be a, a very difficult play compared to Hamlet or certainly King Lear. Um, oh, you know, we didn't talk about King Lear, but anyway, King Lear gives you so much to, to think about, so much to, to ponder. I'm hoping to see it in Stratford, Ontario later this, this summer. Movie versions? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's funny seeing Mel Gibson as Hamlet. Uh, it's actually not a bad movie. It's not a bad movie. I I remember thinking, well, it's it's uh, Hamlet as a middle linebacker in, yeah. instead of a, uh, yeah. a a rather ascetic uh, contemplative person. But yeah. it's still it's it's much better than I expected it to be. And you know, you've always got the Kenneth Branagh Hamlet. If you want to go down that route, it's much longer, and it's oh gosh, it's a bit. You know, oh my goodness, the the Mel Gibson one, whatever you think, whatever you may think of Mr. Gibson, um, the setting does have that sort of early Renaissance feel. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of gritty, and the the stone walls really do look cold and barren. Whereas the Kenneth Branagh one is set in a much, it's like a, a much later Renaissance, even maybe 150 years later in in its look. Uh, and so it's all just a, a question of taste. Of course, Kenneth Branagh is a terrific uh, actor, no question about that. I know that there's a, a new version of The Tempest, relatively new, with Hel- Helen Mirren as the Prospero character. Oh. And I haven't had a chance to see that yet. Um, there's also, you can go back to the uh, the trio of Laurence Olivier directed and starred in uh, Hamlet, Richard III, and Henry V. Well, I'll just tell you, you know, in, in researching this book, I mean, wh- you know, what a terrific excuse it was to to go out and see as many of, of the plays as I could. I, I had the privilege of seeing Henry V at Shakespeare's Globe in London. And, and Henry V is a fun play anyway, right? It's kind of, I mean, it's got all that military stuff, but it also has some very quotable <laughs> lines mm-hmm. of dialogue and, you know, once more to the breach and all that. Um, and just seeing it in that setting was was quite an experience. Um, but I, you know, I, and of course the, I, I went as a, uh, I paid for the groundling, uh, ticket, which was I had to scan through the whole thing, not a big deal. And I think it was five pounds, which is certainly more than the, I think the one penny that, that people paid in, in Shakespeare's day, but, but still a good deal. But of course I am a big fan of the, the free ones. And, um, I, you know, I've seen free Shakespeare productions in, uh, I think New York, Boston, Toronto, Halifax, and some other cities that I can't mm-hmm. think of at the moment. And, 
And there's no excuse for anyone not to go out and enjoy some Shakespeare. Everyone should do it. And, and if people want to take a few moments to think about science just coming into existence and what connections there might have been between Shakespeare's writing and, and the birth of science, uh, that's just fine with me. Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare and the women you That's it for this episode. Remember, you can read a free excerpt from Dan Falk's book, The Science of Shakespeare, A New Look at the Playwrights Universe, on the Scientific American website. The excerpt is called What Shakespeare Knew About Science. Just Google Scientific American and Dan Falk to find it. And get all your science news at our website, where you can read Matthew Schnepp's new article on some of the heretofore unrecognized possible advantages of being dyslexic. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Ha, ha, ha.